Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. When we hear about the climate crisis, it can often be framed as a future or somehow distant dilemma. But environmental justice advocates point out so many ways present-day discriminatory practices and policies have resulted in stark instances of environmental racism here in the U.S., Baltimore, Maryland, and Jackson, Mississippi are two majority black cities that have faced water crises this week. Jackson residents are still under a boil water order as of this morning after more than a month of no access to safe drinking water. And experts say the problem in Jackson is a decades-old issue. Now, one Connecticut author uses his latest work of fiction to reframe the climate crisis as inherently local all while confronting issues of race, class, and gentrification. Today, where we live, Tochi Onyabuchi joins us. His new book, Goliath, envisions his home of New Haven in the not-too-distant future, ravaged by climate crisis and abandoned by those who can afford it. Like his previous work of fiction, Riot Baby, Goliath carries pressing real-world implications. Tochi Onyabuchi is with me in studio. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And our listeners probably remember from your last time and from reading your books, you're a Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and NAACP Image Award finalist. You're a New England Book Award winner. And Goliath has been nominated for a Connecticut Book Award for Best Fiction. Congratulations. Thank you so, so, so very much. It, it's, it still doesn't feel real yet. I'm waiting for that to kick in. <laughs> And also, you're a civil rights lawyer licensed in New York and a comic book writer for Marvel. Can't wait to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to talk about that. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, last year we spoke about your novella, Riot Baby. And I understand at that time you were actually working on Goliath, which came out, I believe, in January. Uh, Both are pretty heavy reads. Uh, Tochi, but you also talk about and write about the process of locating hope. And the prose style in Goliath, you know, there are moments of joy. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the process of writing this book and including those moments. Certainly. I mean, it's it's interesting. As many things uh, as Riot Baby and Goliath may share in their DNA, uh, I wanted them to be sort of polar opposites on a certain craft level. Riot Baby is very much defined by constriction. It's meant to be a sort of claustrophobic read. It's relatively short. Whereas with Goliath, I wanted wanted more expanse, both geographic expanse. I wanted it to be a bigger book, uh, but also in terms of emotional range. Riot Baby is pitched at a very particular emotional register and varies within that particular frame. But with Goliath, there are a lot more. This book made me laugh while writing it a lot more than, than Riot Baby did. And that was very important to me, both in terms of craft, but also just on a spiritual level. I needed that. 
And remind our listeners about briefly about riot babies. So we're thinking about mass incarceration, uh, the moment in time of unarmed black men and women uh, being killed by police. Yeah, it, I mean it. It came out of a very, a very difficult time. Uh, you know, the the first seeds of it were planted. I, you know, I I want to say maybe tail end of 2015. And, you know, as you're very much aware, you know, by that point, we are being inundated with media in our, you know, literally in our virtual living rooms of uh, officer-involved killings of black Americans. And it's happening over and over and over again. And we're seeing in many instances the same sort of result afterwards of a, a lack of I guess reckoning, you could say, on on every single level, whether it's with regards to the employment situation of the officers or even more high level legal uh, issues, and so it's very dark. And and Riot Baby came out of this sort of sense of hopelessness. You know, I wanted to write, in essence, a you know a power fantasy at the time, and I was also very profoundly angry. And this seemed to me the best and most productive way of channeling that anger. And then by the time, and it's funny, actually, I wrote the first draft of Goliath before I wrote the beginnings of Riot Baby. So Goliath happened, I'd say I finished the first draft, March of 2015. And it was already a lot more fun. And I think by the time I returned to it, I was, in addition to being a much better writer, I was in a a much more... I guess you could say complicated or complex in the best way possible, emotional state. And so I could contain, you know, both a sense of indignation at the state of affairs, particularly for black Americans, as well as room for laughter and hope. Um, all of those things could coexist inside me. And I feel like Goliath is representative of that. So Goliath set in 2050, and when we think about, uh, like Riot Baby, uh, the world building beyond allegory, right? This educated guess that the future of what uh, it will look like if environmental racism continues. Uh, so tell us more about you know world building in your writing and why you wanted to focus on climate crisis and environmental racism. Certainly. I mean, uh, it almost felt, for me personally, uh, you know, irresponsible to not write, uh, you know, about about climate. Um, it's so pressing an issue. And I think even from, you know, what you were speaking of before with regards to the water crises that uh, are currently being reported in the news, but have have been issues for a very long time for people. This is something that we've been dealing with for a very, very, very long time. And it was actually, I'd say maybe seven or eight years ago that I actually started finally making the connection between climate and environmental issues and racism. You know, the very fact that, you know, during the summers, you will find urban areas are particularly several degrees hotter, particularly in the summer, than leafy suburbs, simply because of the presence of trees and the, the sort of profusion of trees in suburbs and their lack in urban environments. Little things like that hadn't occurred to me before. And then when they did, all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, climate is important. This is an issue. Uh, and so it, it made sense for me to write about climate, particularly using the, the toolbox of speculative fiction. Uh, it seemed very 
verdant territory for me. Mm. When we think about en environmental racism, uh, even uh, how high rates of asthma in communities of color because of highways that break right through their exactly. neighborhoods. Uh, you know, so it is interesting that these issues are all around us and to, you know, to connect the dots. And so in your book, there's exodusters. We talk about colonies, the great migration um, presented as new phenomena in the book Goliath. But when we think about our history and the history of racism, can you talk about that reappropriation of, of the terms you used? Certainly. I think all speculative fiction is about our now. Um, no matter how far flung in the past, no matter how far flung in the future, we're always writing about the present moment. And, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make with Riot Baby was the sort of interminability of the violent oppression of black Americans by authority structures in the United States and not just individuals, but literally police forces, um, and I wanted to make a similar point with Goliath in that a lot of what's in Goliath is actually happening right now. There's a section of the book that uh, refers to Reserve, Louisiana, and this place called Cancer Alley, uh, which you know has been afflicted. The residents have been afflicted with catastrophic levels of of cancer appearing in their communities because in many in many aspects of their their placement near a rubber factory. They're literally living in the shadow of this massive rubber factory and chemicals are polluting their their land and their neighborhood and everything. And like that's a thing that's happening now. Like that was part of my research. And so so many of you know, and that's just one instance of me literally taking a thing that happened in the present and and bringing it uh into the future, there's another section where uh, a hurricane basically causes a catastrophe in a prison. And uh, that was a thing that has also happened. Um, I believe it was either 2014 or 2015 in South Carolina, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, this is a thing that's happened where, where prisoners have been held in their facilities as a hurricane is bearing down on them. Um, and so I didn't actually have to stretch my imagination that far to bring about what may appear on the surface to be a, a sort of apocalyptic future. The apocalypse is now for a lot of people. You're hearing Tochi Onyabuchi here, Where We Live. He's a New Haven-based author. His latest book is Goliath, as we talk about uh, this uh, adult sci-fi novel and uh, set in New Haven uh, in the future, uh, post-apocalypse. You can join us if you've, re if you've read Goliath or if you have questions for Tochi at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So a lot of heavy themes. You also touch on gentrification. So Talk us through that and the storyline of Goliath and how you bring that into the book. Certainly. I, it's, it's interesting. I wanted, to, I wanted also to make the point that, you know, it's almost as though oftentimes we imagine the future and in this imagined future, we will have fixed a lot of the problems that have afflict us now. Uh, whether it's along a vector of gender, whether it's along a vector of, of race, of class, what have you. Um, 
but we take ourselves with us wherever we go. Uh, and so a lot of those problems will persist, particularly if there's no structural change. And so even when people with means flee to space, there's still going to be reappropriation of land that happens. And one of the things that I wanted to play with in Goliath, particularly in the beginning, is the idea of the frontier fantasy. You know, it's something that we encounter a lot in, in Westerns. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I had in mind while I was writing Angle of Repose by mm-hmm. Wallace Stegner, uh, which is this very sort of almost, you know, elegiac like story of this family setting out, setting out West and making a life for themselves. And I wanted to flip that on its head. You know, what if you live in this kind of boring environment and you figure that moving to this dangerous place, this, this enticingly dangerous place will, you know, fix your marriage or fix your relationship or be an opportunity to, you know, strike it rich you know, it's all gold rush mentality. And I think that will persist even when we've migrated to space. And that basically sets off the chain of events that that um, is the story of Goliath. We've talked a lot about the themes. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the main characters, uh, starting with uh, Jonathan, right? The privileged space dweller who, as you said, uh, wants to head back uh, to Earth um, and thinking about um, the fact that he's able to do that, right? Um, so tell us a little bit about him and some of the other characters in the book. Certainly. I wanted to, I wanted to write Jonathan as relatively self-aware of his privilege. I wanted to steer as much as possible away from there being cut and dry villains or people that we weren't meant to sympathize with or understand or uh, empathize with even. And I think one way to do that is to have your characters be intelligent, not just on an intellectual level, but also on an emotional level. He understands to a certain degree why he's doing the things that he does and that it is having an effect on the people who already live here, even though he may not be as attuned as he's supposed to be to those particular effects. He thinks he's one of the good ones, so to speak. Uh, he even says so in in the book. And it's it's one of those things, too, where I wanted to show that no matter how good your intentions may be, your actions will play out the way that they play out. You know, you could say, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't mean to do that. I mean, that doesn't necessarily matter to the person who's harmed by the thing that you did, who's displaced by the thing that you did. They still don't have a home. They still have lost their land, uh, whether or not you meant for that to happen. Mm. So they're the gentrifiers in your novel, uh, Jonathan, and then uh, his partner, David. I was drawn to the character Link and the storyline between Link and Sydney. No spoilers, but <laughs> I understand that that character, Link, that presented a challenge for you. Tell us about him and why. Certainly. He's, he's, he's inscrutable. And that was something that I... You know, that challenged me as a writer. How do you write a character that doesn't know themselves? How do you access that interiority? And it's funny because it's something that I've encountered throughout my life. I I know people personally who 
you know, have acted out in particular ways and then struggle to find a reason or justification for why they did the thing that they did. It's like, oh, this is just who I am or these are just the circumstances that that I'm in. This is just how things are. You know, but there's a reason why you felt you needed to do the thing that you did. And when you have this character who is a question mark to himself, you know, how do you write that? And so that was something that was very intriguing to me. I wanted to capture that and I wanted to delve into this idea of this character struggling against that as the world is changing around him. And one of the the catalysts to you know, him becoming more emotionally intelligent is the character of Sidney, who actually was so much fun to write and actually brought me maybe one of the biggest, biggest moments or some of the biggest moments of hope in the book. I was just going to say that speaking to, you know, even if the, the world is burning down around you, you know, people still have a capacity to love. They still want to believe uh, that, um, you know, that they can find a place for themselves to have that hope. And so Link is one of the the people uh, not of privilege, a person of color left to live on planet Earth uh, that, you know, is dealing with this this climate apocalypse. Yeah, the the bulk of the novel concerns a group of brick stackers um, sort of left behind in New Haven. And they come from various parts of the country and have all essentially just sort of migrated to this place of relative safety. And it's very much a found family. And I, you know, I wanted to show this community that exists the way that it exists and is, is made up of people who persist in the face of, you know, this idea that things aren't going to get better on the outside, you know, the, their external situation isn't going to improve. There's no, you know, overarching government or, or infrastructural system that will improve their condition. Yet at the same time, you know, they don't just give up. They, they persist in the act of living and in the act of loving and engineering their own deliverance, in a sense. This idea that that even though hell may be what you're going through, heaven is a thing that you can make for yourself. And that can be a terrifying thing because it's like, wait a second, it's, it's up to me. But at the same time, it can be incredibly empowering to say to yourself, it is within my ability to bring myself to this place where I can love, where I can you know, achieve sort of the, the highest degrees of human feeling. There's other moments of hope that we'll be bringing up with uh, Tochi Onyabuchi as my guest today here where we live, talking about his new book, Goliath. Before we head to break, I have to bring up (laughs) Allie or Allison, dare I say, the meddlesome, presumptuous journalist character. (laughs) And tell us about that character and and how in a way it it represents, you know, privilege that is more clear than the Jonathan or David characters. Certainly. I mean, there's... I think one of the one the reason I named her Allison too is that her, <laughs> not Karen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, her you know her nickname could be pronounced Ally, right? And, <laughs> right, right. You know, it's, and I wanted to because one of the things that had fascinated me around the time that I started writing Goliath was there was so much reportage about the problems ailing a lot of the black community in the United States. And a lot of that reportage was being done by 
non-black reporters. And so they're as empathetic as the reporting seemed to be and as you know as as sympathetic to those conditions there always seemed to be this lingering element of zoology of like outsider looking in and that's a fascinating thing to me it's really 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 fascinating because it's you're shining a spotlight on a particular issue and a particular topic um but at the same time you you in doing so you run the risk of you know people bringing malevolent intentions or actions to that particular issue or situation simply because they know about it now and you know there can be this sensa- this sensation on the inside of you know why are you why are you bringing us all this attention now like why are you why are you exposing us to all these people now that know of us and that can do us so much harm. And that's such an incredible tension. And I wanted to explore that, particularly through this character of Allison, who believes that she's doing the right thing. She really believes that she's helping these people by educating others, quote unquote, about how bad it is for them. Um, But of course, there are consequences. And the consequence is what happens to bugs. Exactly. Um, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. You'll have to read the book, Goliath. Uh, again, as we're talking with author and New Haven resident Tochi Onyabuchi, this is a, a book set in a futuristic world, but the story weaves in some of the injustices visible in our world today. We're going to keep talking with Tochi right after a break. What questions do you have? Have you read Goliath or Riot Baby? You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is New Haven author Tochi Onyabuchi as we talk about his sci-fi adult novel, Goliath, out this year. The post-apocalyptic story is set in Connecticut in 2050 after a climate disaster leaves planet Earth radioactive. Black and brown folks are left behind. Some work as stackers or wrecking crews. Their jobs? To tear down houses and send the bricks back to the space colonies where the privileged live 
protected and partly cyberized. Tochi's book is told through vignettes around several characters, and he weaves themes of race, class, and gentrification as space dwellers return to colonize Earth again, this time living under a protective dome. And as you would expect, tension builds between these two groups. Tochi, I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt in just a few minutes, but I mentioned you're New Haven-based, and this book takes place uh, in Connecticut, a lot of scenes in New Haven. I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, why you chose to, to, make, to write this book in the setting that is your home. It's funny because for a very long time, I couldn't write about home. Uh, I could write about, you know, characters in other countries. I could make up entire worlds. But home always seemed too close. Like, I couldn't quite wrap my arms around it and create a fiction out of it. And in many ways, writing Goliath seemed like a way to launch myself into that challenge, but also level up as a writer. And one of the interesting things that happened to me emotionally while writing it was that, you know, I came across so many places that I've encountered and and spent time in and have developed a relationship with in real life that I had to destroy in this book. Um, it, it it was it was heartbreaking in many ways. You know, there's a there's a boxing boxing gym I had to go to that is you know, in the book, it's hollowed out. It's irradiated. It's it's a place where people are. It's a place that people are feeling sad in. And I've had the exact opposite experience there. You know, there there are coffee shops outside of which uh, horrible things happen. But inside those coffee shops, I wrote portions of this of this book. And so it was this very interesting tension I experienced. And I it, it's. I feel like I was able to write about those places in the way that I could because of how much I loved them. And I felt that I knew them in a sense, but at the same time had to do justice to them. Um, yeah, it like I, it's this tension between, oh, I don't know if I can do this to you, but I feel like I have a duty to do this this particular way to you. <laughs> And you've also said that Connecticut is a microcosm of the country. Absolutely. I think if you're looking for an explanation of any particular uh, issue or dynamic uh, along any vector, whether it's socioeconomic, uh, whether it's racial, you can find that writ small in Connecticut. The fact that, that Bridgeport and Fairfield are in the same county the same county, uh, you know, educational segregation, housing segregation. Um, it's, it, it's, it's all here. The, you know, the, the town that, that I spent a lot of my adolescence in, um, the downtown area is called Constitution Square. And there's a portion, it's sort of ringed by storefronts and shops. And there's one corner that contains a, uh, a spa, and next to that there's an organic food place. And then next to that is a uh, uh, Chinese food restaurant, and then next to that is a gun store, and then a driver's ed shingle. And it's all, it's all that. It's literally all the same block they're right next to each other. And that, uh, that to me seems so emblematic of, <laughs> you know, 
a lot of what you could call the mishmash of the American polity. So I feel like in many ways, Connecticut is an answer to a lot of questions that people are asking about the country, particularly the current state of affairs. You know, where my family lives is rife with people who voted for, you know, the man who was president for, you know, the previous administration. Um, and But it's a blue state. And it's, you know, all, you're, all these questions that people might have about how did, you know, why why are we the way that we are now as a national polity? There are answers waiting for you in Connecticut. Mm, I love that. When you're reading the book, Goliath, uh, you know, characters visit Elizabeth Park. Uh, you reference Whaley Avenue. Uh, but there's a part of the book, uh, the letter from Connecticut, which describes one pocket of the city in a, a kind of journalistic interlude. Can you read that portion to us, Tochi? Absolutely. New Hallville is bordered on the north by the town of Hamden, on the east by Winchester Avenue, on the south by Munson Street, on the southwest by Crescent Street, and on the northwest by Fournier Street. Dixwell Avenue, Shelton Avenue, Winchester Avenue, and Bassett Street are the main drags cutting through the neighborhood. The Farmington Canal rips straight through the middle. The late 19th and 20th centuries saw industry churn to life in the district. The canal gets converted into a railroad and Enterprising George Newhall built a small factory where the carriages get built. Other factories sprout like weeds around the first, followed by workers' houses and a boarding house for the unmarried male workers. Guns come to Newhallville in 1870, when the Winchester Repeating Arms Company sets up shop. And by the Second World War, the thing covered more than six city blocks and employed over 19,000 workers. One family, two family, three family tenement homes surrounded the plant, built by real estate investors either for rental or to be sold on speculation. And when you have enough factory workers, enough breadwinners employed by a single industrial giant, you get butchers and grocers and barbers. Winchester becomes the leading employer in New Haven, so of course it relocates to Illinois. A machinist strike in the late 1970s results in the plant being sold to the U.S. Repeating Arms Company, and by the turn of the new millennium, the place had laid off the rest of its workers. Yale University tried to restore and redevelop the skeleton left by Winchester, turning the factory complex into Science Park. But space travel became too affordable too quickly. Satellite campuses in the colonies grew into main campuses, and parents had less incentive to send their children to a domed environment where just on the other side of the shield, the air was so poisonous your chances of lung cancer rose by an average of 35%. Tax base shrivels, resources dwindle, schools fail, and the kinds of things that keep kids off the streets and out of jail, summer programs, vocational education, church programs, all of that follows suit. Same story across the state. Same story across the country. The tax base left, but the guns didn't. Mm. That's Tochi Onobuchi here where we live, reading from his new sci-fi novel out this year, Goliath. You know, I have a two-part question. One, when we think about when you're reading the book, this is the first time that you have a break from uh, the character stories. So why was it important to have that you know, journalistic interlude there? And then also the research that you did writing this book. Uh, it's funny. I... I have a couple subscriptions to periodicals and having 
having the print versions of these things uh, helps me with maintaining a certain in- attention span, but also <laughs> easing the stress on my eyes, not looking at a screen. And, you know, I love these publications. And in many ways, the journalistic interludes were the closest I think I can come <laughs> to writing for those publications. You know, it, it, it may be a while before I find my name as a byline in Harper's or the London Review of Books, but I can pretend to <laughs> have done that in this book. Um, it was, they were important to me because I wanted to have them contribute to the scope or the feel of scope in the book. Um, there are certain things that by dint of geography, the characters won't have experienced or won't have knowledge of, you know, they're living very much in the gutter. And so there's no way for them to have a view of the state of affairs of the history of the place from 30,000 feet in the air. And these journalistic interludes were a way of capturing that, but also maintaining a sort of linkage between you know, the high-level view of socioeconomic change and its implications for, for race and the characters as they are existing in their, their present situation. Because I, I, I wanted to have that connective tissue. I didn't want there to just be this portrait of the future. I wanted to indicate in the book how we got there. And the question about your research, thinking about, you know, the history of Winchester or even, you know, there's a part of your book uh, where there is a riot inside a prison and, you know, the the work you did researching Attica. Oh, my goodness. It's the very first time that I encountered Attica was in law school. There was a, a portion of a film documentary that we had watched talking about the the police and I guess military response to uh, the uprising. And it was the very first time that I'd even heard of this. Uh, but it, it, it was instantly horrific to me. And I didn't know that this was a thing that had happened. And uh, maybe a, a year later or so, maybe a few years later, I was privileged to hear Heather Ann, Dr. Heather Ann Thompson speak uh, regarding her book, Blood in the Water, which is basically a chronicle of the uprising and its aftermath. Absolutely riveting work and some of the best writing that I've seen on (laughs) any sort of prison issue in many ways. And I was riveted and I heard her speak and it, it was the very first time that I heard, I heard Attica referred to as a civil rights moment. It had never occurred to me that, that was a valid characterization of what happened because you have this gathering of prisoners in the yard and they're putting together a list of demands that are basically, you know, a hop, skip and a jump away from the, you know, the UN <laughs> Convention on Civil Rights. It's, it's, or, or the UN Convention on, on Human Rights. It's, it was literally the same document and it was of a piece with so many other instances of what we would characteristically call civil rights moments uh, in American history. And I wanted, I, I wanted to do that. And so much of the book is caught up in the least among us, or at least the lives of the least among us. And it would have been literally criminal of me to have this book filled with these characters and very much occupied with this idea and this theme and not write about the incarcerated. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to bring up Bishop 
<laughs> and his role in the book uh, as a spiritual leader uh, and almost uh, a mentor in some ways uh, to some of the characters. Can you talk a little bit about him? Oh, man. Bishop, I... <laughs> I love that man so much. Um, I mean, he was an oppor- uh, he was another opportunity for me to explore the history of this story. Um, some of the how we got here. You know, he was a sort of flesh and blood avatar for that function in the book. Um, and oftentimes, you you can encounter people like that in a community. They're they're not just glue. They're you know, the central, you know, they're, they're the town square. You know, they're the monument at the center of the town around which people organize themselves. And he, you know, he, he has this gravitational pull. And it was always interesting seeing how he interacted with the other characters. And that, was, that, that characterized so much of the book for me. It almost felt like I was paying witness rather than engineering, you know, the situations that the characters go through. And... You know, his relationship, particularly with the the younger men in the group, it was important for me to delve into that, especially because of, you know, what we were talking about earlier with regards to Link and this idea of emotional inscrutability. You know, this kid that's figuring himself out or struggling to figure himself out. And then there's this older guy that comes along who's been through so much and who knows himself much more than this kid can know himself and in his own way can try to help this kid along, not by being didactic or anything like that, um, but by being there. And, oh, man, he was such a complicated character. But at the same time, because of that, so much fun to write. There's that one scene where uh, Bishop... uh uh, goes after, I believe, uh, a New Haven comptroller uh, <laughs> asking for more food and supplies for the neighborhood. So he was the advocate, too. And this Absolutely. this comptroller, a partly robotic individual villain. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's interesting because so much of so much of government and and even local government is absent from the book. Um, and And a lot of that came from the idea that you know, people will experience the effects of political decisions that are made, whether on the the local level at, you know, a board of education meeting or a state level or even a federal level. But there's almost no connection cognitively between them and the person making that decision. But occasionally, those people will enter into a person's life, oftentimes around election season, but, you know, occasionally outside of that. And this was an instance where I wanted also to show a side of Bishop that, you know, parts of the community hadn't seen and didn't necessarily know he was capable of. And it's one of those things where you see somebody do a thing and you're like, wait a second, I don't know this person. I don't really know this person, or I don't know what they've been through, or I don't know what's inside them that allowed them to go to the place where they could do this. Um, And he's doing that in service of, he's doing this thing in service of his community. He's like, yo, we don't have food. We've tried to get food. This is the only way I can think of to get food for my people. Um, so yeah, no, it was a very, that was a very interesting scene to write. Yeah. You're hearing Tochi Onyabuchi here where we live. Again, he's based in New Haven. We're talking about his 2022 adult sci-fi novel, Goliath. More after a short break. 
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. New Haven author Tochi Onyabuchi is my guest today to talk about his latest book, Goliath, a novel about a near-future climate apocalypse set in Connecticut. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Earlier, we talked about the importance of bringing in hope. Uh, and there's a moment in this novel, despite all that the characters are enduring, where they discover uh, the miracle of real non-robotic horses, bringing them from Stratford to, to New Haven. Tell us about that. There's something about horses. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not a pet owner, um, but maybe maybe pet owners feel a similar thing, where you know, the, the animal that you're encountering is a sort of black box. Like, you can't actually, you can't understand what they're saying in the same way that you can understand human speech. But there is some communication happening that seems almost, uh, you know, in some ways can border on the celestial. It touches the spirit. It touches the, the emotions in a particular way that bypasses a lot of the cognitive functions uh, engaged in when we, when we use language with each other. Um, and also, every time that I've encountered a horse, <laughs> which admittedly hasn't been that often, um, I found myself changed as a result some, in some way, shape, or form. There's something magical about them. And I wanted these characters to experience magic. And magic in the form of something that, you know, by all logic is not supposed to be there. It's, they're not, these, these completely healthy, natural horses. Like this land is showered with radiation. There's acid rain. There's all types of, like, you know, mutated boars and animals that are just like everything is grotesque and mutated and 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 almost visually obscene but then you have these beautiful equine creatures just hanging out and i wanted to give that to these people and i wanted because i feel like when you're in hellish situations you know, deliverance can come from the strangest places when you're not even expecting it. And it can often feel like it's celestially organized. Um, almost as though, you know, God or a higher power is signaling to you, I got you. I got you. You may not feel like it right now, but here's this, here's me telling you that I got you. Um, I'm giving this to you. And it's a gift. It's without condition. Um, this is me expressing my love for you. And the horses were a way of these, these characters, the least among us, feeling loved in a way. Um, and so that's, I, I guess, why horses. I feel like any answer I give to the question of the horses <laughs> is going to be an incomplete answer uh, because there's just stuff inside me that that could be part of an answer to that question that I just don't know quite how to articulate yet as long as I've lived with this story <laughs> um, because it's that deep and that fundamental and that emotional for me. Um, but yeah, it, magic and love, I guess. Yeah. 
You know, earlier we talked about uh, finding hope and uh, this idea of, you know, the impact of the places where we live, uh, where we can uh, make an impact, you know. When you think about the work of Goliath and some of the takeaways you want to leave our listeners with, can you talk about what that means exactly, the the hope in the local? Certainly. I I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk of climate change on a planetary scale and even on a, a regional scale. You know, if we're even limiting ourselves to the United States, you know, we'll talk about the drying up of the Colorado River and why that means they're... You know, people in Los Angeles have to ration water now. Or, you know, we'll talk about the water crisis in specific cities, you know, leaving aside the fact that, you know, these have been problems in, you know, the metropolis, metropolises all over the country. Or we'll talk about hurricane season in the mid-Atlantic or in the Gulf. Um, but how are, how are specific communities, how are specific uh neighborhoods affected by that. And I feel like that's where the individual can better wrap their mind around the issue of climate change. I don't know about marine isotope stages, but I know about Chapel Street. You know, it's, it's, it's that sort of, it's that sort of thing. It's a way I think for us as, as individuals to better encounter this, this hyper object of climate change that can feel so so glacial in its eventual impact on us, but at the same time so immediate and inscrutable. Why is it so much hotter now at this time of year than it was five years ago? Like, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe the answer has to do with the carbon emissions from companies that are an ocean away or what have you. What can I do about that? Like, what am I in the face of that? I can't, you know, I can't get ExxonMobil to stop doing what ExxonMobil does. I can't get British Petroleum to stop being British Petroleum. Um, But you know, as, as, as treacly as this may sound, you know, I might be able to plant a tree in a place that didn't have a tree before. Um, that, you know, there's a symbolic aspect to that, but at the same time, you know, trees, they, they can help with gathering and retaining moisture and (laughs) cooling, cooling the air a little bit. So, you know, I think, I think that is a takeaway that I hope I'm able to leave readers with. Is that, that, you know, that's where you can, you know, because you look at you look at the enormity of climate change as an issue and even the way that we talk about it, it can it's so easy to feel hopeless in in the face of that. And, you know, of course, rightly so. But at the same time, um, if you're looking for a way to locate duty in the face of that or even capability in the face of that, you know, you can look to the local. Right. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, and when we think about even the title, Goliath, the inspiration from the Bible story, David and Goliath, can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I, the, the very beginnings of this story actually happened when I was in the West Bank working for a prisoner's rights organization. And the, the Arabic pronunciation for Palestine is Philistine. And I was like, wait a second, I know the Philistines. I, I grew up in a very biblically robust household. And the question in my head was, what were the Philistines up to before they started beefing with the Israelites? And then I was like, wait a second, what were the Philistines up to before they were beefing with the Israelites? And I wanted to flip it. I wanted to take this idea of Goliath as this otherized 
um, you know, almost creature and take that identity and, and blanket it on a population, what was it, you know, what's it like to be perceived as the enemy or this inscrutable, almost creature that others have to come and conquer? What is it like to feel like that? Um, in many ways, that's, that's what it feels like to be black in America. You've been hearing Tochi Onyabuchi here where we live. I mentioned at the top that you're also a writer for Marvel. We didn't get a chance to, to get into any of that, so you'll have to come back and just talk about Marvel. Of course, of course. That that might be a whole two episodes. Yes. Tochi Onyabuchi again, his latest book, Goliath. What a pleasure to have you in studio. Thank you for your time on the show. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast podcast app. Have a great weekend.